Good morning. I'm Dan Crocker, and you're listening to NPR News. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. The Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness is a watery forest land that runs 150 miles along the U.S.-Canada border. It covers more than one million acres. Walleye, lake trout, northern pike swim in more than a thousand lakes, streams, and back bays. Forests of pine and fir, spruce, and cedar rise out of the granite outcrops. The area was set aside in 1926 to maintain its natural beauty and then preserved as designated wilderness in 1964. Motorized boats are not allowed on most lakes, so the only sounds you hear are the dip of a paddle, the occasional call of a loon. It really is a magical place. And over the past two summers, more people have discovered that magic. Nearly 166,000 people visited the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness last summer. That's a 16% jump from the previous year, and the most in at least a decade, according to the U.S. Forest Service. And this summer could could turn out to be just as busy, even with forest fires burning in Canada and some closures. Today, we're going to talk about how to protect the isolated beauty of the BWCA as it's used by more and more people. And I would love to hear from you, too. Have you visited the Boundary Waters? What do you love about it? Tell us about it. And are you worried about people loving the wilderness to death? The phone lines are open. Give us a call, 651-227-6000, or you can tweet me at Dan underscore Crocker. That's K-R-A-K-E-R. Let's bring in our guests. Ann Schwaller oversees the BWCA as program manager for the Superior National Forest. Good morning, Ann. Good morning. And David Seaton has run Hungry Jack Outfitters on the Gunflint Trail with his wife, Nancy, for nearly 30 years now. David, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here, Dan. So, David, I want to start with you. I'm curious, how has business been these past two summers? Well, busy is uh, a mild term. Uh, Last summer was really over the top. We started off the summer with travel restrictions, and so we, were, we weren't even sure if we were going to be open. And then once the travel restrictions were uh, eliminated, people started calling and the phone just didn't stop ringing for the whole rest of the summer. So we were very much at capacity uh, almost all summer long. This year has been a little less, a little more normal, um, but certainly mm-hmm. busier than the last few years. And what are people telling you? Why, uh, why are people coming to visit? And is it a different group of visitors? Are you seeing new folks? Well, one of the interesting things is that we're seeing people who haven't been in the Boundary Waters in a long time. I know I've got people that I saw originally as children or teenagers now coming with their kids. And last summer, especially Hmm. because people weren't able to do things like go to summer camp or go to the Grand Canyon or the Bahamas or wherever, they said, well, we've got this great place in our backyard that we new and love as children, let's finally get around to bringing our kids up here. And that was that was really fun to be part of that. Yeah. So folks who hadn't been up for a while coming back, what about um, first-timers? Have you, have you seen more of those? Last summer we did see an awful lot of people who had never been to the Boundary Waters. Some of that early in the season especially was because so many other places were closed. There just weren't a lot of other venues for people to get outdoors. And so we did have some people from mainly around the Midwest, but even some folks from the West Coast and down in the South who were just looking for some place that they could get out and paddle and be in wilderness, and they came to the Boundary Waters for the first time. So, you know, there were some some education things and some context issues that needed to be cleared up, but 
for the most part, I think people did a pretty good job. And this year, we're back very much to our traditional users. We're seeing a lot of folks that, for whatever reason, chose not to come last year or haven't been here for a few years and are coming back and seeing the wilderness again. Uh, I, I've spoken to other outfitters who have echoed what you have said. Um, they, they described last summer as, as pretty crazy. Um, this summer, I, I, I know folks were anticipating a really busy summer. Um, have the have the fires, any of the closures? I know I know the fires have been a, a ways from you over and more on the Ely side, but has that been an impact for you this summer? It has um, in two ways. One, with the closures of the Echo Trail entry points and the ones around the Delta Fire, the people mm-hmm. who were really intent on coming to the Boundary Waters were snapping up any permit that they could get over on the eastern side of the Boundary Waters. And so there was a period of time there where every last permit was used and uh, late July and early August. Uh, otherwise, the the thing that happens, and this happens anytime that there's a fire anywhere in the Boundary Waters, is that people hear fire in the Boundary Waters, they don't understand necessarily where that fire is or how it might impact their trip, and so we get a lot of phone calls asking questions, and there's always going to be a few cancellations where people are just, well, if there's a fire, I'm just not going to go up there and what we always tell them is, you know, if there's a fire in Stillwater and you live in Wyzetta, would you be worried about it? Good context. Ann Schwaller, uh, we've been listening to David Seaton talk about the, um, you know, anecdotally what he has seen this past couple of years in terms of the number of visitors um, coming to his business. Um, what, what does the data say? What, did, what, what, what do the numbers tell us more broadly for visitation to the Boundary Waters? I, I know there were nearly 166,000 visitors last summer. How does, how does that compare to previous years? You know, we average about 150,000 visitors a year. So um, the jump last year was uh, expected. You know, everyone was saying, go outside, it's, it's safer. You know, a lot of the things that you would take your kids to were closed, any kind of entertainment. Um, pretty much, you know, public lands they were on the spot and we were no exception. So we did see several thousand um, more reservations than we usually do with both overnight paddle and um, overnight motor and day use motor. So all of that jumped up, but we do have a quota system in place. So there is definitely a stopping point, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, any idea what the numbers are going to be like this summer? I know you don't typically don't tally visitors to the end of the year, but but what are you seeing and what are you anticipating? Yeah, that's right. We we don't usually tally because we have you know a considerable amount of no shows. We have thousands of cancellations every year. Even last year, we had thousands of cancellations. So you know we really don't know until the end. Um, and we also have self issue permits for the rest of the year and for day use during the summer. And we have to, you know, collect all of those self-issue permits at the boxes or at the cooperators or um, elsewhere at resorts. So, you know, usually we don't have the full number until the next year, but as far as the quota season, May through September, um, we, we will have that later in the fall. But, you know, we are seeing really high use again this year, but like Dave says, it's not as high as last year. Um, but there's always fluctuations every year, depending on what's going on. Um, 
it's unfortunate that we had to add COVID as one of those fluctuation reasons, but I mean, it fluctuates a lot, weather, uh, fire, blowdown, you know, if we have campsite closures, you know, restoration work, um, even insect hatches sometimes drives people away, you know, recessions. Um, the fluctuations throughout the years um, are many. So this is no exception. It is busy though, right? It's I mean, I've, I've been up there looking for permits and, and there's, there aren't many permits available anymore. No, and um, it, it, the fires have changed a little bit of that as well. Like Dave says, um, you know, the availability jumps back and forth depending on what's going on on the west side or the east side or central. Um, but yeah, uh, there the, there's not a lot of availability right now. But however, like I said, there's thousands of cancellations throughout the year. So sometimes you can check back and you can find a permit. We're talking about the boundary waters this hour, the increased usage it's seen, both the pros and cons of more people discovering the wilderness. Join the conversation. Give us a call, 651-227-6000, or send me a tweet, Dan underscore Crocker. That's spelled K-R-A-K-E-R. Let's go to the phones. We've got several people waiting. I had a hunch people would want to weigh in on the beloved boundary waters. Brad in Minnetonka has called in. Brad, thanks for joining us. What do you want to say? Good morning, and thank you for taking my call. Um, I've Absolutely. been going to the Boundary Waters for probably 40 years, and it's just a magnificent, pristine wilderness. I love it, and I love the solitude and the beauty. But there's just a simple mantra that I think needs to be repeated and educating people who are new to the BWCA, which is very simple. The credo is, leave it cleaner than you found it. And if you go camping up there, you pick up every single twisty, every single piece of garbage, every single piece of plastic so that your campsite is pristine for the next person. And I think that if you do that, we can continue to share it and have many people love it. And by the way, I've been going up for many years, and the outfitter I use is um, Hungry Jack Outfitters, which is outstanding. So, David, thank you for being on. Thank Brad, you. thanks for the call. And it's a, it's a great message that leave no trace ethic is, is what is taught when you go into the wilderness. And why don't you explain for folks who might not be familiar with what that means? I mean, on some level, it's self-explanatory, but what does it mean to leave no trace when you go into the Boundary Waters? Well, the Boundary Waters is unlike most camping experiences because you're not in a car, you are, you know, in a canoe and you are out in the wilderness. And so you're bringing everything in with you, which means you need to bring everything back out with you. So when you are camping, you're going to make a little bit of a mess. You're going to bring some, some activity with you to that campsite and you want to then spend a, a significant amount of time when you leave to scour the campsite for every little piece of, of garbage or anything that would make an impact that would be unsightly to the next camping group. And if you take that credo and you, and you leave no trace, then the next group that comes in will have just as good of experience as you do. And I think it's a really important mantra. Ann Schwaller, I know the Forest Service works to educate folks to teach them about the leave no trace wilderness ethic. Talk about how that works in the steps that are taken to ensure that campers know these rules before they go into the boundary waters? 
Sure, um, but first I want to dive into Leave No Trace a little bit deeper than, than you know, picking up trash, which is vital. But there are also things to think about, you know, planning ahead and preparing for your trip, you know, knowing the regulations and the rules um, for where you're going and be prepared for extreme weather. You know, make sure you have a map and compass. Um, and yes, pick up all of your, your trash, but, but reduce the opportunity to have trash. Um, you know, repackage your food in reusable plastic bags or containers. Um, that'll help cut down on the trash that you're carrying around. Um, but, you know, staying on durable surfaces, you know, when you get to a campsite, use the areas that are already impacted. Don't clear out vegetation um, to make a campsite bigger because that just causes erosion and causes more problems. You know, take your waste with you. You know, don't burn it. Don't burn garbage, certainly not plastic. You know, that pollutes the air and the water. Um, you know, <laughs> don't throw trash in the latrines. Sometimes that happens. Um, but, you know, in leaving what you find, you know, there are all kinds of cultural or historical artifacts and structures out there. Um, leave them for future generations. Um, you know, and just being considerate of other people, that's part of the Leave No Trace principle. Um, you know, let, let the, the sounds of nature prevail, you know, avoid being really loud. Um, well, sound travels really well over water um, and respect wildlife. You know, don't approach them, don't feed them. Um, one of the big things this summer is keeping your food away from, from bears. You know, make sure that you hang your food properly and high enough and far enough away from the tree trunk. Um, and if you can't do that, you know, have a, a, a bear resistant container, you know, to try to not reward bears with that food, because if you do, they'll just keep coming and um, it's detriment for the bear, of course. Um, but I think your question was, what do we do for education? Um, you know, last year we had a, a virtual permit issuance um, with the Forest Service online. You could watch the video and, and talk about Leave No Trace and and all of that. Um, but we've also, a few years ago, we've updated our, our video series to three different segments. So you receive your initial video with your reservation and it talks about planning ahead. And then a couple weeks before you arrive, you get another video that talks about packing and being prepared in general. And then the third video you watch when you get your permit, either at the Forest Service office or at a, at a cooperator. And that just talks about, you know, final resource messages and, and any alerts to the area for that for that week. Um, we also do other things like wilderness education sessions at local schools. Um, every mm -hmm. year, several mm -hmm. of us guest lecture at universities. We 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 talk to media. We we try. <laughs> <laughs> Dave Seaton, what about you? What do you say to clients? Um, do you play a role as well in educating folks about about how to respect that, that leave-no-trace ethic? Well, sure. Um, it starts off with when people are calling to ask about coming to the Boundary Waters and making reservations. And it, as Ann said, you know, getting people to be prepared and understand what they're getting into so that the situation that they're set up to do, the, the, the entry point and the, and the route that they want to go on is appropriate for what they want. And so that they have the opportunity to do all those things correctly. But 
directly what we do when they're here at our place. They do watch that third video. Or most people, actually, this year, I've been really impressed, have already seen it by the time they come. You know, they find it on YouTube or wherever, and they watch it before they come. But then there's a test on the back of every permit, and we go through that test with every single customer. And it's interesting how, you know, people sometimes kind of demure a little bit and say, well, I've been coming to the Boundary Waters forever. I don't need to take that test. There's a test? What test? Well, there's supposed to be a test that people take every time they get a permit. And really it's an opportunity to converse with people about some of these specific rules in the Boundary Waters. You know, how should your dog be allowed to behave? Do you have to clean up after your dog? Um, talking about sound, as Ann mentioned, you know, these voices travel over the water, and some people just are, are living in neighborhoods uh, or in, in, a, in a situation where, you know, yelling across the yard is not a big deal, whereas here, when it's dead calm, that's, that's really disturbing to other campers. And we talk about how to deal with their soapy water, and one of the biggest things is, you know, what do you do with fish guts? You know, if you're going to be out fishing mm-hmm. and catch fish and clean them, um, the fish guts are the thing that attracts the bears and other critters. And so we spend a good deal of time talking about what's appropriate and how to deal with that. And different places, too, you know, there's some places where there are, the bears are more active, and we need to harp a little more on you know, making sure that your food pack is hung up properly or you have a bear barrel or whatever it is that you're going to do. Um, but we, we do spend some time, and it, basically it's a conversation, and it's, it's a good way for people to have opportunities to ask questions about things they might not understand or they might not understand why we do things. So it's, it's a great opportunity to have a conversation when we issue those Boundary Waters permits. Let's go back to the phones. Um, if you want to join this conversation on the Boundary Waters, the lines are open at 651-227-6000. Al has called in from Minneapolis. Al, thanks for joining us. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. You bet. What do you want to say? Well, um, you know, there's a, there's a constant thing called the tragedy of the commons in which stuff that's held in common gets overused by everybody because they want to make sure they get their share and the BWCA is approaching that kind of a situation. So I really think it sounds draconian, but I think we need to go to a pretty rigorous uh, permit system that that sits down and says, how many people can we have up here uh, for a season and, you know, set up a lottery or something, but limit the access, uh, track the people that make reservations constantly and and then never show up or cancel out at the last minute so as to to make it as, as accessible as possible but to make sure that we're just simply not going to trample it to death al thanks for that perspective and i also got an email from david and Renschel who um, had a similar sentiment he said that en- entry quotas should be further restricted if that means i can only go every other or every third year i'm content knowing that this resource is protected and Schwaller, I'm curious, has there been any discussion at the Forest Service of maybe limiting access, maybe reducing quota numbers or permit numbers? Yeah, so every handful of years we we look at the travel model, um, which you know looks at entry point quota and campsite availability or occupancy, um, and there's over 90 travel zones and Every few years, we look at the relevancy of the travel model and um, the integrity of it. And um, 
last year, well, basically the year before last year and this year, we're looking at all of that again. And it's, um, it's a complex system, um, but we, you know, the quota do change um, from time to time. Sometimes it's permanent, sometimes it's temporary. You know, if we have a lot of restoration projects, we'll um, change the quota to, to have less people in an area or um, that kind of thing. So the quota do fluctuate. Um, and yes, we have been talking about um, difficulties from 2020, but also difficulties in the previous years. So yes, we are talking about that. Um, as you can imagine, it's a, um, it's a deep conversation with everyone, um, right. with visitors, right. with local businesses, and with uh, managers who have laws and policies to follow. Dave Seaton, I'm curious your thoughts on that idea. Um, obviously, that could potentially have an impact on your business. Do you think there's merit in considering l- somehow reducing or looking at limiting the number of folks who can enter the Boundary Waters every year? Well, I guess the bottom line is the experience that people have. And any business person would acknowledge that if your customer isn't getting the product that they're buying, then they're not going to come back. And all the outfitters are very much aware that the experience that people have in the Boundary Waters has to be a quality one. And people would disagree on, you know, how many people should be allowed in and how many permits and all that sort of stuff. But um, I I think it's pretty universal that we all understand that basic concept, that if people aren't having a good time, if they aren't finding a campsite, if they feel like the place is overrun, that's not good for anybody. So I I certainly am am interested in the idea and the concept and looking at some different possibilities and ways to do that in a a reasonable and metered uh, way over time. Um, but the thing that I would add is that the Boundary Waters is a really unique experience, even as busy as it is. You know, last summer, we really didn't have anybody coming out early because they couldn't find a campsite, which almost every year that happens at some point during the summer. And I think part of it was that people were listening when we were trying to tell them, you know, you can't stay on a perimeter lake the entire time you're out there. You need to travel in. Mm. And if you do travel in, then when you come back out, don't expect to be able to stay on a perimeter lake. Because there are people who, for various reasons, either they're not as physically capable or they have small children with them um, or whatever, you know, they they need to stay at some of those perimeter lakes and stay at some of those easier campsites. And so part of the uh, issue that you run into is um, crowding, um, in quotations, is uh, a local effect. And if you can get people to travel further into the wilderness and to go to some of those portages and campsites on lakes that are one more portage off the main route, everybody has a better experience. And so some of it's just education, too. And people have to be willing to work a little bit harder, right? Right. And um, that's a point that I wanted to bring up is that, you know, it's not a state park. And it's not going down to Minnehaha Falls. It's, it's, an, it's an adventure. And the excitement of the adventure has got to be something that people really want to go to the Boundary Waters. And uh, if they're willing to put in a little extra effort, they are going to have a better experience all the way around. And one of the things that we've seen over the last few years is people doing more what we call base camping. You know, they, they set up, they, they travel one day, 
they get somewhere and they set up and they stay there for three or four days and do day trips. And while there's nothing wrong with that, if everybody did that, there'd be parts of the Boundary Waters that wouldn't really get utilized at all, and those perimeter lakes, lakes within a day's travel, are going to be overrun. So um, mm-hmm. in the past, they actually had a travel model where people were not required but encouraged to travel more. And I think uh, there may be that may be part of a solution in the future is is not necessarily reserving specific campsites, but maybe even you know having having different routes or different travel areas that you're allowed to be in while you're out in the wilderness. We're talking about the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness this hour. The uh, popularity of the wilderness and how that's grown over the last two years during the pandemic. We have lots of callers waiting. I'm going to ask you to be patient. I want to get to everyone who's called in. Good morning. We are talking about the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness on NPR News. I'm Dan Crocker. Thanks so much for joining us. How can we preserve the isolated beauty of the BWCA as more and more people discover it? There's been a big surge in visitors during the pandemic that's exposed more people to this iconic wilderness, but it has also had an impact on the environment. My guests today are Ann Schwaller. She's program manager for the Forest Services Superior National Forest, and she oversees the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. David Seaton runs Hungry Jack Outfitters on the Gunflint Trail. I'd also love to hear from you. Give us a call, 651-227-6000, to get in on the conversation. We've got a few folks waiting who I am going to get to in a second, I promise. But first, I want to quickly bring a third guest into the conversation. Matt Poppleton is executive director of YMCA Camp Widgeewagon, which sends groups of young people on canoe trips into the BWCA from a base camp on Burnside Lake near Ely. Welcome, Matt. Thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Dan. Thanks so much. It's a great conversation. So tell us about Camp Widgee. Uh, what is, briefly, for folks who aren't familiar with it, what does your, your program look like? Yeah, Camp Widgeewagon is part of the YMCA of the North, and we are a wilderness tripping program for youth 11 to 18 years old. And we have sort of our sister camp, Camp Minogen, uh, which is over on the Gunflint Trail. And since the late 1920s into the 1930s, uh, we've been sending... Uh, young people out into the wilderness, even before it was designated as the Boundary Waters. And uh, we have maintained that program uh, for decades. Uh, Often seen many generations of families come through the camps and be exposed for the first time to the Boundary Waters through through Camp Widgewagon here. So how important is it to get young people into nature? I think it's extremely important. It has always been noted as uh, a transformative experience for young people. Uh, That has been referenced uh, from alumni that I speak with over the years who said, you know, I did one trip uh, through Camp Widgeewagon, and I am now in my 70s and reflect back on that as a pivotal moment in my sort of character human development. Um, I've had the privilege of seeing kids this summer in particular uh, come, and we weren't able to operate last summer uh, due to covid Mm -hmm. Uh, but this summer, I've been able to watch the kids. I'm the first one they meet when they get off the bus. Everybody comes off a little tentative. They've got their masks on. They're stepping into this place. Some are returning campers. Some are brand new. Uh, but then we watch that transformation. They're in camp for a few days, getting ready for their trips, planning their routes, and then they're off. Uh, they're off for either you know one night in the Boundary Waters or for some up to three weeks uh, this summer. And I then get to re- see them return, and the impact is profound. Uh, these kids have been, uh, you know, either 
remote school, in front of screens, limited social experiences. And so the impact that I've seen, particularly this summer, has been profound. So I think in general, kids need to be exposed to the outdoors and one another through these small group experiences. Uh, But what I've been able to witness this summer has been uh, tremendous and seeing them come back into camp uh, feeling stronger, smiling, a little bug bitten around the ankles, a little dirt in the face, uh, but just Hmm. huge smiles and a connection to one another, a connection to themselves, uh, and a real appreciation for the wilderness that they were able to travel through. And, you know, Matt, I've talking to outfitters over the years, I've heard a a concern that perhaps the demographics might be changing, that the typical visitor to the BWCA is getting older, you know, that younger people don't want to come and rough it in the woods for a week. Do you share those concerns or or are you seeing sort of this next generation that you think is going to learn to love the BWCA and want to come back? I, I do. I am heartened by the interest and engagement of young people in the outdoors. I, I think there are families that are turning to us to maybe be that, that organization to introduce people to the outdoors. It might not be happening sort of as generationally as it has in the past. And so I think the Y has been identified as a trusted uh, organization to, to take kids out in and expose them to the outdoors. And so uh, our, our enrollment is strong. We've actually had to limit it uh, based on trying to, pr- you know, create a, a safe COVID space as far as numbers um, and things like that. But uh, I, I know across uh, our wilderness camps, so for Widjewagen and Minogen and other uh, programs that send uh, campers and families into the Boundary Waters, uh, that interest is high, uh, higher. Probably have waiting lists uh, and wish we could accommodate every camper possible, uh, but also trying to keep everybody safe and work within our limits. Let's go back to the phones. Um, if you wanted to get in on this conversation on the Boundary Waters, you can give us a call at 651-227-6000. Mark has called in from St. Paul. Mark, thanks so much. What do you want to say? Hi. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yeah, you're sounding good. <laughs> Great. Hi. I'm uh, an experienced wilderness guide uh, who spent a lot of time in the Boundary Waters and, and also uh, in backcountry areas um, all over the globe. And I wanted to make a comment around leave no trace that I think is important to um, just expand upon. And then I also had a question. And my comment is, um, I think a lot of people who are new to leave no trace tend to only think about trash. And over time, one of the things I've been most mindful of is how I'm affecting water quality with things like soap and toothpaste. So I just wanted to like share that and say that even though the water looks pristine, like it is already fragile. And, um, I see a lot of people like washing their hair with shampoo, um, you know, from the store. And, um, so I think that's, that's something to, 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 to raise. And then my, my question is around, uh, enforcement and how has the penalties, um, and the enforcement of those, um, changed over time? Because sometimes I wonder if people simply aren't feeling the repercussions from littering or from, you know, doing things that they shouldn't up there. Um, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you for the call. Um, and Ann Schaller, let me throw that to you. Um, as someone who's traveled a lot in the Bondi Waters, I've actually never been, and maybe I'm unusual, but I've I've never been approached by by a ranger or law or enforcement. Could you talk a little bit about that? Has in to to Mark's question, has enforcement declined, or 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 how does that work? How do uh, how is are, are those leave no trace principles like that? How are those enforced? 
So we have wilderness rangers out there. Um, we also have volunteers that help with education. Um, you know, the, the, we have permanent uh, workforce for wilderness rangers, but we also have a temporary workforce. And, you know, a lot of that can fluctuate based on budget every year. Um, but for the most part, we try to maintain the same numbers or higher. Um, it's interesting because some folks say, oh my gosh, I see a wilderness ranger every trip. And they talk to me about the same, <laughs> um, leave no trace messages every trip. I mean, give me a break. And then other folks that say, I never get to see a wilderness ranger and talk about anything. There's no one out there. It's like, it's, you know, it really is, um, um, a, you know, based on just where you are, they can't be everywhere at the same time. Sure. Of course, um, a there's a lot of different. Wilderness. Yeah, there's just a lot of different travel routes in and out of lakes, unlike, you know, maybe a hiking trail where there's the trail. Um, there's just so many entries and exits. They they do the best they can. But our enforcement hasn't dropped. Um, we still, okay. fortunately, okay. have to write violation notices for um, different um environmental infractions and we also write a lot of warnings but most of what we do is education that is that is the the main thing that we try to do let's bring in another caller who has been extremely patient amanda in orno amanda welcome what did you want to add to the conversation <laughs> oh thanks i i love the conversation happy to wait um and happy that it's happening um so this is kind of a piggyback on previous callers I've been a backpacker for over 20 years, national parks, pure hiking trail, a lot of different things. And my girlfriends and I went to the Boundary Waters this year um, because one had, uh, she has a bad back. And so we thought with the canoe and the portages, the other two of us could handle everything. Anyway, I was shocked. The reason I was calling is we were all shocked by the number of um, people who go in and set up camp for long periods of time, you know, do more of a base camp. And I don't want to say that's wrong. Um, it's not. It's just a different experience. We're used to people going to a site, setting up, enjoying it for the night, and then moving on the next day. So my question was really about permits. And you guys have kind of talked about this before is, you know, people can draw a permit and then stay in for as long as they like. And that seems to me, in my inexperience and my ignorance, maybe an issue in overuse if it starts to become too popular. Um, granted, yeah, so maybe I'll just leave it there because I've taken up enough yeah. airtime. <laughs> no, that's great, Amanda, and I really appreciate you calling. You raised a couple issues, um, and I'm going to, th- and, and Dave Seaton brought this up earlier this idea of people paddling in and maybe one day setting up a base camp and, you know, clogging up those perimeter lakes. Um, and Ann Schwaller at the Forest Service, I believe you might want to add to that. What did you want to say to that? Is that something the Forest Service is looking at, possibly trying to encourage people to um, to go beyond those those um, entry lakes? Yes, we, we have added that to our educational information. Um, you know, the travel model is is based on people traveling night to night, but it also accounts for some base camping, just not all of the base camping that we see now. And and some of the issue there is simply bringing too much stuff. I think folks, some of them, from what they tell us, planned on, on moving every night, um, but they simply, you know, 
underestimated the work involved with that. So we mm -hmm. talk about, um, you know, trying to be minimalists out there the best you can so you can move on. But like Dave said, you know, some folks just simply can't do that. Either they're, you know, they have medical issues or they have young kids. And so, yeah, we, we, we would encourage those folks to base camp and the travel model accounts for that. But maybe not, it doesn't account for as much base camping as we have. So we're trying to tackle that through education. Um, but I will add that, yes, you can stay in there as long as you can, but still after all these years, the average length of time is four nights. Mm. Mm -hmm. Dave Seaton, is that long enough? I, 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 um, you know, to experience the really what the wilderness has to offer, what do you recommend? Do you think four nights cuts it? No. <laughs> um, I always tell people all the good stuff starts happening on day five. And it takes, a, it takes a few days for your brain to slow down. It takes a few days for you to acclimate to roughing it a little bit, not having hot running water, not having all your comforts of home. And it, it never fails. When we have people who go out for longer trips, 7, 10, even 15 days, they come back happier and more relaxed and much more satisfied with their overall experience. And uh, my personal experience is that it, it seems like it's around day five that all the, all the changes really occur. And people's, people's brains are just operating at a really high rate of speed. You know, if you think about just driving a car around the city, you're, you're processing information at an incredible rate. And when you're traveling at two and a half miles an hour, or traveling very little over a period of five days, uh, all of your brain processes just slow down. And that's really a more natural state. And I think people need an opportunity to be able to get to that state. And that's one of the best things that the Boundary Waters has to offer. And I do think that the travel is actually part of it. It's, it's having that pace all day of just gently paddling along and portaging along. You're not running you're not racing, and you're just moving. And then going through the motions of, of everything that you do every day, you're preparing food and you're cleaning up after and breaking camp and all those methodical things just get you back to a more natural state. A concept that I try to communicate to people is that Boundary Waters canoeing and camping is what human beings are really built to do. They're not built to sit behind a desk. They're not built to run marathons. They're not built to drive cars but they are built to travel and camp and gather food and, you know, live naturally. And after the fifth day, it starts to feel much more accustomed and normal to people. Yeah. I know one of my, one of the things I love the most about going up there, especially with my job and being constantly connected is that I do, I am forced to disconnect and, um, you know, not have cell access and not have email. Um, for me, that's, that's what's so reinvigorating about going up there. We're talking about the Bondi Waters today. A few more minutes on the discussion to get in. 651-227-6000. Let's go back to the phones. Mike in Duluth. Mike, thanks for calling. Oh, thank you. Um, I'll be brief. I just wanted to revisit um, the Boy Scouts. I think it is fantastic that young people are getting in the woods and understanding what wilderness is and, um, you know, cause they're future voters and their future supporters of public land. 
But I've traveled um, a fair amount through the Boundary Waters, and I just want to challenge the Boy Scouts to um, to do better. You know, it's like, you know, there's a boat limit of four boats, and I oftentimes see eight boats with Boy Scouts and Outward Bound. And, um, and sometimes those groups are pretty destructive. You know, you paddle by one of their campsites. It's loud. It's chaotic. They're screaming. And... Um, so I just want to challenge those groups, you know, Outward Bound and the Boy Scouts and the Scouts in general to um, perhaps try to do a better job managing um, the, their participants once they are out into the wilderness. Thank you. Mike, thanks for, for the call. Um, I want to throw that to Matt Poppleton. I was out in the BW earlier this summer, and I, I did see a lot of Boy Scout groups. I didn't share the experience that Mike had. Um, the groups I saw were respectful um, however, I did see a lot of groups, Matt. Um, well, so t- why don't you talk about what you do to, um, well, I'd like you to respond to what Mike said and talk a little bit, if you would, um, about the education you do with your scouts, your campers about wilderness ethics. Sure. Yeah, I can't comment too specifically on the Boy Scouts. We're kind of a, you know, a, a partner in getting youth of exposed to the outdoors, and we each have kind of our own approaches uh, but we do, you know, we overlap and we travel with the Boy Scouts as well as Outward Bound and, and have a good, uh, you know, shared mission of developing young people through these outdoor experiences. We all have slightly different approaches to that. Um, mm-hmm. But what we start with uh, at Widgewagon is, like I said, when we welcome campers off the bus, our, our mission here at Widgie that aligns with the YMCA here is to develop in young people this ethic of respect. And we start with oneself. We then talk about how that uh, can be transferred to working with others. So we intentionally have a small group uh, that we travel with. Uh, that then extends to the environment, uh, the land that we're occupying, the land that we're traveling through. Uh, and then we even extend it to the equipment that we use. And that's the first thing kids hear when they get here is what our mission is and why we do what we do. Uh, these wilderness trips are to start developing uh, their sort of human development and this ethic of respect. And so that's a great way to just set the tone set the expectations for everything that follows. And so the kids then take their own individual responsibility on taking care of themselves, packing their packs, uh, you know, getting themselves up and through the day, as well as being a supportive team member. And then when we introduce the Leave No Trace principles and the ways that we travel through the wilderness, it aligns with that mission. And I think, as it's been mentioned throughout the hour, education is so important. And we, we present it in this holistic way of, uh, this is going to, you know, help improve your experience, help improve who you are and these straight uh, skills to transfer even outside of the, the wilderness trip into their lives back home. And so I think that groundwork of respect, which is off, you know, it's a thread through all of the education from the Forest Service as well, uh, especially at uh, sort of an impressionable young person, really helps set the tone and uh, expectations that we have uh, for how we travel. Neil in Cottage Grove called in and said, I've brought three youth groups up to the Boundary Waters from Chicago and St. Paul. The line we always heard was, take nothing but pictures and leave nothing but footprints, which is always great advice. Um, back to the phones now. Ben in Scandia. Ben, thanks for joining the conversation. What did you want to add? Oh, yes. Hi. Thank you very much. Um, so uh, so I'm a, a huge lover of the outdoors and camping, and I totally agree with the five the five-day rule. Um, One thing that I've noticed over the years um, in northern Minnesota and elsewhere is the tremendous racial disparity um, 
especially with regard to African-Americans. I would say about 99% of the people I see out there are, you know, white Anglos like me. Um, and and then there's, I think there's a particular irony when it comes to Native Americans. Our, the host, uh, the guest was just saying, you know, humans are meant to travel slow and to and to get, gather food and camp and live simply. And that, of course, is exactly how the Native Americans were living there. Um, uh, but back to African Americans, just one second. Um, one reason for the for the disparity is that African Americans' experience of the wilderness has been diametrically opposite of that of white people in this country. Um, for many African Americans. Um, you know, the rural areas are more risky, uh, can be, and I don't want to speak for African-Americans, uh, except that that's just been my observation, um, having some good friends. Um, I'll leave it at that. Hey, Ben, yeah, let me stop you there. Um, thanks for the call. You raise a really important issue. I mean, I've heard it referred to as the adventure gap on how, you know, outdoor activities, biking, canoeing, kayaking, climbing tend to be overwhelmingly white. Um I guess, Matt Poppleton, I might throw this to you. I'm curious if there are efforts at the Y or maybe other youth groups you've seen out there in introducing a more diverse set of young people to the Boundary Waters. It's a great question and one that we have been working on for some time uh, and in the most past couple of years with even more uh, focus and attention. And so mm-hmm. uh, I know we um, I work with Anthony Taylor, uh, who is a senior vice president of equity in the outdoors for the YMCA of the North. And I work with Anthony as well as our other camps in strategies and programs uh, that will help us uh, be accessible and inclusive for a wider uh, racial population of campers coming in. That is a that is our our work is centered on that. When we talk about our core values of respect, honesty, responsibility, caring, equity is a part of that as well now. And so that drives our work and what we're doing. And there is much work to be done. Uh, we have generations uh, that have not been able to access these uh, wilderness places as they have in the past. Uh, we also have been doing a lot of our own internal review and soul searching. I know specifically for Wijiwagan, uh, as, well as, as well as the other camps, uh, we are working on our commitments to anti-racism uh, and commitments to an anti-oppressive organization. And so we have our implementation plans. Uh, we are thinking creatively, uh, examining some of the practices and traditions that we have that uh, may be exclusive to others, um, trying to form and reconnect uh, with um, here in Ely area, the Boys Fort uh, tribal nation and expanding our, our impact for young people. And I'm going to take one more phone call here. We've got just a couple minutes left. Uh, Matt uh, has been waiting from Chicago. Matt, we, we are getting close on time, so try to keep your comments brief, but thanks for calling in. What do you want to say? Right. Thanks. Thanks for taking my call. You know, I was up there last year over Labor Day. I'm going up again this Labor Day, and there was a lot of garbage, you know, and I think that since last year, the ranger stations are closed and the you know, the video orientations were all watched online, um, you know, more or less on the honor system. I just wish there was more accountability for every single uh, member of each party to, you know, watch those videos. That's it. Thanks for the call. And Shwala, really briefly, um, folks are required to watch those videos before they go into the wilderness, right? Yep, that's correct. Um, they used to watch them, the one video that was longer in person, either at our offices or at cooperators' um, businesses. And we changed the segment 
we changed the format. So, um, but we are talking about accountability and tracking who watches what video. We're trying. Well, this has been a great conversation um, about the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. Uh, I wish we had more time um, to get into some of this, but I want to thank our guest, Ann Schwaller. She oversees the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness as Program Manager for the Superior National Forest. And thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. David Seaton has run Hungry Jack Outfitters on the Gunflint Trail with his wife Nancy for 30 years. David, I know you're going to be embarking on a solo trip, right, <laughs> later this summer. So I, I wish you well on that trip, and thanks for being with us. Thank you, Dan. And also thanks to Matt Poppleton at Camp Wigiwagon in Ely. Matt, thank you. Thank you so much, Dan. It's been a pleasure. Thank, thanks for everybody for listening. This is NPR News. Support comes from SDN Communications. As their 50,000-mile fiber network expands across rural Minnesota, new business opportunities can grow right along with it. You can learn more at sdncommunications.com. You've been listening to a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. You can hear Dan Crocker, Nina Moyni, Chris Farrell, and other guest hosts during a live call-in show at 9 a.m. weekdays throughout the month of August. Looking for Carrie Miller? She's back talking about books and ideas at 11 a.m. every Friday starting September 10th. Thanks for listening.